Welcome to another episode of the Marvel's Voices podcast. I am your host and resident nerd, Angelique Roche. Whether you are new to the show or a frequent listener, welcome or welcome back. As you may know from the show's description, Marvel's Voices is the place to spotlight diverse storytellers from around the Marvel Universe, including writers, artists, actors, directors, and fans like you. This week, we're speaking to artist, writer, and creator behind the Smithsonian's Of Gods and Heroes exhibition, Jeffrey Varagi. If you're a comic book fan, if you loved the Marvel hip-hop covers, if you checked out Marvel's Voices, Indigenous Voices number one, um, then you know Jeffrey's work. Uh, Jeffrey has worked on not just a series of gorgeous Native American heritage tribute variant covers for Marvel's Voices, Indigenous Voices, which are available at your local comic book shop, uh, and showcase series like Danielle Moonstar, Black Panther, Spider-Man, and more. But he has also done some incredible work on some of your favorite characters over the years. Not to mention, he also created an incredible introduction for Marvel's Voices, Indigenous Voices, number one. Welcome, Jeffrey, and thank you so much for joining us. You're an artist. You're from the Pacific Northwest. Talk to me a little bit about growing up in your particular area. Okay. Yeah, I grew up here in Washington State. Uh, my tribe is the Port Gamble Sklallam tribe. Our reservation's locally known as Little Boston. We're about two and a half hours from Seattle. I spent almost my entire life there. Uh, it was not a great big community, but it is still a community. People say a village, a fishing village, essentially. Most of my uncles and cousins were either uh, fishermen or they worked at the local mill that was across the water there, the, the Pope and Talbot Mill. Growing up there, uh, it, was, it was a wonderful experience. My aunts, uncles, my, almost my entire family was there. I, I've never known not to be around family uh, and extended family and cousins. I, you say everybody's your cousin on the reservation, and it's true. It, it feels like it. everybody feels like family. During the toughest times, it's awesome because everybody comes together and nobody's truly alone. And the, the best of times, everybody comes together and celebrates. The work that I do was definitely the seeds were planted long ago as a, a child, just walking around through our tribal center and going to our, our canoe shed and seeing the not just the totem poles, but the carvings and the, and the screen prints done by our local tribal artists. Uh, that, that was a big influence on me. I didn't know it at the time that they were influencing me because honestly, when I started going to school, my teachers kept really pushing me at art school to, to really pursue that style. And I was really hesitant saying, you know, I really, I, I didn't want to be pigeonholed like that because I was a native artist. I didn't want people to call me a native artist. I wanted to be called an artist. And, uh, but they said, it, it comes so naturally. You need to really do this. And, wasn't until after I graduated art school that I did a job for my tribe and it was to design a logo for them and they wanted Salish designs in there. And so I went and did the research and I did stuff. I knew that I faked some of the stuff in there, that the design elements were visually okay, but I probably, I didn't understand what all the shapes meant, what their significance were and how they were being used. Visually it made sense, but it didn't necessarily make sense from 
uh, the design principle standpoint that was used in form line design. Yeah. And being fresh out of art school, I now realize that other artists are going to look at my work and say, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's crazy. He's, it, it, he's, uh, he's full of it. He, he, he's totally BS in the way through, through the work. And so I went to our, our cultural liaison and worked with a guy named David Boxley. He's a Simshan master from Alaska. Fortunately, I, he lived a few miles away from my house and I apprenticed with him. He was really awesome. He taught me the basics of form line design in exchange for doing finished work on some of his big projects in the afternoons, mornings I would draw. Afternoons I would work on uh, work on his projects, and then my wife would either bake for him or we'd go get him clams or something from the bay there that we lived at. And that's all he ever accepted as payment. I did that with him for about six, seven months, and that was basically the art that was getting planted. All those were seeds that were being planted at the time. The whole time this was going on, I've always been a comic nerd. I've always been a space junkie. Right. Like you've been, you've been a comic nerd for what, four, I I mean, you've said it before, like you've been a comic book nerd for over 40 years. Like for you though, like what was that first comic? Like what was your first exposure? Like what drew you to comics as a medium? Cartoons. As, As a kid, it looked like cartoons in book format. You, uh, I didn't read it, couldn't read it or understand it, but you could understand the pictures and everything that was going on, the sequential art. Uh, they were masterful. They, you always understood what was going on, the expressions the artists had created, everything that went in there, you didn't have to read to understand what was going on. And some of those very first books that I read as a kid were, I love Uncle Scrooge Adventures, I still do. Uh, Archie, my mom that bought me Archie, and eventually they started buying me Spider-Man and Superboy. Uh, until Star Wars came out, and that changed everything. <laughs> <laughs> that said, every single nerd ever uh, who was alive when Star Wars came out, um, whether you like Star Wars or not, it changed. Oh, everything. Totally. I was already yeah, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs over robots as a, as a little boy. When that came out, it was just it just exploded for yeah. me. So. You grew up around so much art, so much of, you know, different ex- like experiences that you kind of like just imposed on your brain. Like it wasn't like, oh, I'm looking, I'm looking at art. Like this is having an impact on me. But at some point you decided that you wanted to be an artist. What was it that made that transition from this just being a part of your life to being something that you wanted to study and do? Uh, like I said, I've been drawing uh, since I was a little boy. My great-grandmother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother were artists. Uh, my great-grandmother painted covers for Liberty Magazine uh, in the 20s, 30s. I was always drawing in school. I was always drawing classes, teachers always drawing. I know my parents probably thought that I should have been studying a lot harder and, and, and not drawing in class as much. Uh, but really what made me change my mind was I knew that I was going to need a skill. I knew that I needed a, a job. And one of the biggest influences was meeting my wife. Um, I was not a jock. I had no athletic ability. I didn't know what kind of prospects I had, but I do know that I knew how to draw. And so that's what it was. I wanted to impress her. So I started drawing and I still have all the drawings. Uh, It was 
the first one I did was uh, they were all X-Men, but they were all bears and animals and stuff like that. Cause I wanted to go like cutesy style thing, but I really remember pushing myself doing more foreshortening and more perspective than I tr- normally would. I wanted to take chances cause I really want to do a presser. Oh, I'm sorry. Like my, like my whole heart is now like sparkling. Cause like, Oh, how did you get into art? Well, I wanted to impress a girl and now we're married. So it worked. Yeah. And she's uh, been my biggest fan since and, and supporter. She believes in me even when I don't believe in myself. She's been, I could not have been gotten this far in my life without her. I love it. Uh, I want to talk about that the whole time, but I want to, I want to make sure I don't get distracted. And we, we, cause she sounds absolutely amazing. Um, she is. Yeah. We've been together uh, going on nearly 30 years. So. Okay. My heart. <laughs> um, so it, in all of this, your, your biggest fan, obviously cheering you on, you know, I think that also that support system also helps with this idea of where your art is rooting from. You mentioned a little bit about this idea of being pigeonholed. And I think that's a lot of artists of color in general. Like, I think that is a thing that a lot of artists of color, whether they're writers or they're visual artists or performance artists, do struggle with this idea of, I just want to be an artist. Like, I don't want to necessarily be pigeonholed because of X, whether it's gender, location. um, But you really did, and a lot of the work that a lot of folks have seen of yours is rooted in this traditional style that you mentioned called form line, which is truly a storytelling. Like I, I, I want to really dig d- deep into it for folks who are listening because it in of itself is storytelling based upon what you use and the symbols that are in it. So can you break down what form line design is and what it, can mean because I know this is there is this is this is not a five second answer uh, yeah. when you really dig into it and, and a little bit of its history. Yeah, form line design is the art style design that was used on the West Coast, primarily Pacific Northwest up through Alaska parts of Alaska, that was used to tell our stories. It was a set of shapes, simple shapes that would go on to be used as head, shoulders. Uh, arms, feet, basically the designs that you see. It was a way for the artists, the storytellers at the time to preserve our culture and to share the the tales that meant the most to us. The, 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 the life lessons as well as just simple pleasure of telling a story. Uh, the, the shapes themselves and the color palettes that are used vary from region to region. The, the style that I studied under Simshan was Alaskan. So my shapes are a little bit different than what my contemporaries here in the Seattle area use, which they're more Salish based, which are less more square. But I do incorporate shapes from my region into, into that. So I mix a little bit of the, the Alaskan form line design as well as the coastal Salish that's here in the Seattle area. Me, I, what I do this work, I, Try to ca- I, I try to think about what my ancestors did, what they were using these shapes for, were for originally. And then I try to think, what is the contemporary use of that? What is, What are all the ways that that could be used and still honor that spirit, that same uh, core idea of why, why that shape was used to begin with? An example that I often use, share that, is the idea of a shape called a split U. Now, if you see this split U used 
in traditional form line design up any place, you'll see that it's often used as feathers. For me, I thought that, okay, so it's flight. It's, it's not the idea of feather, but more the idea of flight for me. So I use that in capes. I use that in ship propulsions. I use that in rays of light, which some artists do that too, as well as you, when you see suns and moons, you see the, the, the rays of light emanating from the design. They use a lot of split use for that. That's that rectangular shape that has a split there in the middle. It kind of looks like some people make it look like a Y, others make it look like a V, a stylized V at the end, but it's something like that. In my youth, I didn't want to be pigeonholed as a native artist because I wanted to show everyone what I was capable of. And working in in marketing for 11 years, I hadn't been creating any art that was really for me. Uh, It was a great job that I had. It was paying my bills, but I wasn't doing anything fun. And I thought, you know, I'm going to start doing something just for me, just, just because I need this. To get back to that kid who marveled at finding a white piece of paper and saying, oh, this could be a million things, but what do I get to say it is? And I really hadn't done that until about six or seven years ago. Uh, From art school on, I was always drawing what people wanted me to draw or design what people needed me to design, but that didn't sit down and say, oh, I want to make this because this is fun. And this is what I love. That's what my portfolio was in art school was comic books. It was Star Wars. It was Star Trek. And uh, the teachers were kind of pushing me to not do that so much. But uh, it was really hard because that's what I've always loved. And when I started making this art, I thought, you know what? I had to do two things. I had to accept that one, I really am a nerd. Uh, You get picked on, you get messed with. And that messes with your psyche after so many years of it. I mean, to be honest, I kept thinking my wife was going to wake up one day and say, oh, my God, I'm married to a nerd. I don't think I could do this. (laughs) And uh but realizing she loves me uh, was huge and accepting that and then saying, okay, I'm, I want to make art. What do I make? What do I know? And the thing is, these, these are the worlds that I know, the comic book worlds, uh, space worlds, fantasy. I'm not a big fantasy guy. I'm not a big Game of Thrones. I've actually only watched one episode, but I am a geek for all intents and purposes. And these are things that I know. So I thought, okay, well, also... What do I want people to know about me? If I'm making this art, why am I making this art? But, you know, I want people to know that there's a native voice. It's a native person saying this, sharing these. And that was important to me. I wanted to make sure that whatever I was drawing was authentic to myself. And what I love about it, what makes me feel good about it is I feel that I'm doing the same thing that Sklalem storytellers were doing centuries before me sharing the stories that they knew that they were raised around the stories of good versus evil uh, of the moral stories that we see now today in comics and in film uh, that I'm doing the same thing they are. I'm just using uh, updated uh, color palettes and uh, characters, but the tropes, the ideas are still the same. And that's actually really interesting because one of the questions I wanted to ask you is how do you take that traditional design, those traditional ideas, that storytelling, and then, you know, you're using a computer, right? Like what is your process to bringing that traditional art onto the covers and pages of comic books? And honestly, how long does this take? Because 
These covers for Marvel's Voices and Disney's Voices number one are so detailed. Thank you. Uh, sometimes it, it takes, they can go really fast. And then there's other times that they are really, uh, they take a while. The concepts generally take a lot longer to come up with. The finished work doesn't because I understand the shapes. I understand, I've already in my mind kind of laid it out. It's just laying out the initial composition and then just playing with the color palettes for that. The, the way to keep the traditional in there is, you know, I still thumbnail and sketch and, you know, art school has been, was great. Taught me the things that I need to do. I create mood boards a lot of times for whenever I create pieces. So I know I, I try to get as many angles of the characters that I've, I'm looking at. Uh, and then I also create things that maybe stylistically might influence my work. My process generally can be, sometimes it can be as quick as two, three hours. And other times it could be 20 to 30 hours, depending on the design. And sometimes it could, even the simplest design could take longer because I'm taking away every, as much as I can from it to still recognize, still be recognizable what I'm trying to share. Uh, so that it varies from piece to piece and from character to character, actually. Sometimes the, the easiest ones to do are the characters that I'm least familiar with because I'm not uh, bound by my own ideas that I've had on these characters. And then there's other times where those ideas that I've had for these characters, I get to share and use. So it's, uh, it really depends on the, on the, the design and the character choice. Love it. So a couple of years ago, six, seven years ago, you decided, hey, I'm going to do this for me. I'm going to do the thing that I love. And then you have a Smithsonian exhibit, which, <laughs> you know, that's that's not a small feat because at the end of the day, the Smithsonian kept and actually purchased pieces from that exhibit. How did this come about? How did you get started? And like, what was your inspiration I think you've touched on it a little bit, but I kind of want to, I, I do want to talk about it for Of Gods and Heroes. Yeah, the Gods and Heroes was uh, an amazing experience, amazing thing that I I still can't believe that, that that was part of it. I mean, artists, you go your whole life thinking you want to be in museums, you want to be in galleries. And when you get something like the Smithsonian calls and then you, re- you they want you to create something and then you get to, then you realize that, oh, I'm drawing superheroes for the Smithsonian. I mean, really, it's like, how is this possible? You know, I, I still, it's still crazy to me because, I, you know, I'm sitting there looking at this thinking, man, this is comic book stuff. This is things that I love, but this is a Smithsonian, you know, and it, 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 it was really a surreal experience. Uh, so what happened was uh, I just started working with Marvel. I just, uh, they just announced Red Wolf. Uh, I'd been actually in communication with Smithsonian for about a good two years. Uh, it was right after io9 did a featured article on me and showed my artwork. And I got a bunch of emails and I thought, you know, the, I actually emailed the Smithsonian myself. And I told them that someday I hope that I'd, I'd love to be considered to be, I'd love to have an exhibit there someday. And they told me, oh, Mr. Varagi, you know, thank you. You know, appreciate it. Tell you what, just we'll keep our eye on you and we'll let you know. And about two years later, after I started working with Marvel, uh, I'd been working with IDW, working on G.I. Joe and Judge Dredd and some Transformers. They uh, 
they gave me a call. But knowing that they they purchased my art and that it's going to be there, that my great-grandchildren could go there and request to see it is an awesome thing. And what I love about it is I was able to put like my wife in there and a couple of my kids so we could get some of the designs in there so they could see that. That, that to me was a huge thing. The other thing was when I created that piece, the two pieces, I wanted the splash piece. I wanted every child that ever seen that to be able to say, Oh, that's me. That's, that's who I am. So I tried to make sure that when I did it, that we, I got as many of Marvel's ethnicities as possible represented to me. Uh, to be honest, I forgot a Muslim. And so I went back after I did the design, I said, Hey, I'd really like to add Miss Marvel. I'd, I would hate for a Muslim child to go there and see no representation. Being Native American, I know what that feels like. And I don't want that to happen. So that was something that they said, yeah, go ahead. And I, the truth was I actually drew her in already. The, I figured they were going to say yes, but I wanted to make sure. If they said, well, how long would that take? I want to say, well, I already did it. You know, it was, it's done. You know, so. It's like, yeah, you know what? About that, it's, our, it's, it's good to go. Yeah. That's really incredible. And I think it's just so interesting to me because now you've done over a hundred variant covers. At least that's what the internet tells me. I'm sure <laughs> it's more than that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in November of 2020, Marvel's Voices, Indigenous Voices number one came out. Can you tell me a little bit about the process, everything that went into this book? Um, I am obsessed with everything having to do with The Watcher in this book. Spoilers for everybody. Um, and, you know, what your inspiration kind of was for your work and bringing this together. You know, the the thing was, we started talking about this a little bit with C.B. Sobolski about two years ago when the exhibit just had opened. And we started exchanging emails and asked if he'd seen the exhibit and everything. And then I told, you know, start talking about, well, maybe we could do something for Native American Heritage Month. And he said, well, yeah, let's talk about this. I like the idea of that. And we started talking and what really grew from one cover, I figured I was going to try, okay, which character do I think would be best for that? grew to uh, multiple covers and it went from one to four to six to nine. And it grew from that. And that's where the, the Marvel voices came from. I was asked, would I be the introduction to the, the, the thing and, and do that? And, I th- and they said, we really want a timeline of the native characters. We think that would be great. It's just some way you could figure out a way to do that. And I was like, okay, great. Can I write it and draw it? Or just write, you want me to just draw it? It's like, if you want to write it and draw it, try it. Yeah, we'll see. And like, oh, yes. And I thought, okay, so how do you introduce a timeline to this book if that's the first thing that you see? And I thought, okay, you definitely need a narrator. You need somebody to introduce an introduction. And the nerd me thought, oh, this is a chance to honor Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. So how about... Uh, the watch to me seemed perfect for that because he is recording history and using him as the introduction. And it's a chance for me to draw him too. So, I mean, I'm not going to lie. That was, that, that was one of my things is, okay, he's a character I would like to draw, you know, and I would like to, like to write for. So um, that, that was the inspiration for that. And then I wanted to show if I could 
I wanted to do what I called native Kirby style art with, with the design itself that I wanted to, to feel native, but I also wanted to feel that you had Jack Kirby's cosmic style that was going on in there that he was so wonderful at doing. So what you don't know is that, um, all your covers are the background of my computer. You can't see it. Uh, <laughs> and I am extremely obsessed about what you did with the watcher and I cannot wait for folks to see it honestly, because it's told in such a very strong, profound way for you in creating that story and creating that story in form in formline design. Can you talk to me about some of the elements that you were able to put into the actual artwork that folks might not necessarily notice, um, but contribute to how you were able to lay out that particular introduction? Uh, just the shapes, this center general, uh, this the composition of itself is very traditional, uh, even though the, the, the characters being used, the color palettes and stuff are not the idea of a character flat, straight on like that, the way he's posed with his hands and the gesture is very traditional in, in the sense of that, uh, you know, it's telling a story that this time I get to actually write that. When you go to the other pages, what I wanted to do was I wanted to make sure that it felt you could, like I said, it was very purposeful. Some of the things that I put, I put eagles in there as a constant tie, because to me, eagles are the one thing that most native cultures are all respectful of, that, that the eagles, one of the top totems or spirit animals for their tribes. And so that was a universal thing that I thought, okay, let's, let me use that as the starting, the focal point and build off of that. The shapes that you see in there, again, they're the shapes that, that were being used hundreds of years ago. They might not necessarily be used the right way. So, I mean, but that's the cool thing when you're doing something like Jack Kirby style art, you can throw crazy. You can throw what would normally be eyes, and they could still be eyes. But are they space eyes? Are they what are what are you looking at here? So you get kind of that funky cosmic feeling to it. I, I tried to keep the flow of it like a traditional native piece. The story, the way the arcs around the, the counterclockwise, the way everything is laid out is very traditional in the sense that the symmetry of it and the movements that I've created with that. I love it. I I honestly, I can't wait for people to see it. And I personally want it in my house on a poster on my wall. But is there any particular story that you're really excited or was there any inspiration for any of the stories that you feel like you're just, you're so excited for folks to see? I, I'm excited for folks to see all of it. It, it. It's just wonderful because I know some of these people um, from my years just being in the business, uh, like in Digicon, uh, we show you I know her, I know Darcy, uh, Little Badger, Rebecca Roanhorse, I know them. Uh, so to be able to see my name with people that I know and the kids that are friends is an awesome feeling. And that knowing that we're representing our culture and using our, our abilities to bring to life these native characters in a new fun way is such a strong feeling of pride. And then when I you, you get these tweets at you, when people say that, they you know, the natives saying this is what, they've waited their whole life to see is you can't not cry when you read stuff like that, that, that to me is the most exciting aspect of it is, is, is seeing our art see my friends art on there, but it's more seeing the impact that this can have 
on the readers, not just the non-native readers who are getting a new history, because some of the stuff that are being put in there is things that might not get spoken of that native culture, native communities understand, but maybe non-natives don't. So it's a chance to get a closer glimpse at who we are, but it's, it's getting to see what the native kids, what native fans see and, and take pride, say, Oh, we are, we are good. And we do have something to share. And I believe we all do, but it's just that little spark that I hope that says, okay, I can do something. I want to go do this and launch something much bigger than myself or the, the book. For you, and I think you kind of touched on it there, why do you think this book, this particular Marvel's Voices book, is so important? It's important to me because it really does break the stereotypes that we're we're telling our in our own way, we're telling it in a way that is still contemporary and is still as good as any of the talent that's on the shelves right now. I, I, I don't want, I'm not, please don't take that as a, bragging right or anything like that but if you look at the skills that went into this from the smallest piece to the largest that the skills are there that they're there and marvel putting that out there and saying that you know we're banking on these people that that this is not just an opportunity to share their diverse cultures you know we, we are a business and we need to be able to cover our expenses and make a profit if we can and they're saying that this is profitable this can be done and that, to me, opens doors for other, not just Native culture, but other cultures as well, saying, what can they do? What can we do? You know, we're going to be adding more dimension to these characters by doing that, that we're going to make the Marvel Universe, which is already rich, even richer. And we're grounding it in in reality that, that people don't get to see. And that's going to be the cool part, is that over time, if this continues, and I hope that it does, you get to see these things that that most of us know and love in a way that it's going to be fresh and brand new to all of you. I love it. And I also love the fact that this is honestly so core to telling the story and understanding everyone's story and bringing everyone in and Marvel being really the world outside our windows, but also that you were able to bring so much of your love for comics to this. Like you are a true fan. That being said, are there any characters for you that you're either like a total super fan of, or you're like, man, can I just, I want to work on this character. I've got so many ideas and so much love. Oh man, that that's hard. If we're just limiting it to the Marvel universe, that is, I mean, I love Daredevil, uh, Matt Murdock, uh, Hell's Kitchen. I would love to, to work on Daredevil uh, just to me because he brings the the grit. I like Matt Murdock as a person, as a character. I like his heart. I like what he what he represents. I would love to do an Iron Fist and Luke Cage if that was possible. Or Doctor Strange would be a fun one to do. And who doesn't love the X-Men? I mean, the X-Men as a teenager, totally, to me, it felt like it helped save me a little bit. Uh, just identify it came at the right time. I remember as a kid that I'd see all the big kids always talking about X-Men, X-Men, X-Men. Go to the rack, you see these X-Men comics. Like, you know, I I really didn't like X-Men as a kid. I was more of a G.I. Joe guy then, and uh, I'd get occasional Iron Man. And then about 13 or 14, I read my first X-Men. It's like, wow, that is awesome. And the stories that were being used and shared that 
you know, as, as a geek, when you read that sort of thing, it really did resonate with you because you thought, okay, here's, these are good guys. They're just born that way. They, but they're trying to, to make the place better and people still don't like it, but they still try to do what's right. And I think that that was, that's, that re- was a teenager that wasn't very popular <laughs> that helped. <laughs> so helped me out a lot. Um, and now that Marvel has Star Wars again, that would be a, a really fun one to work on. I think that uh, I could I could do some damage on a book like Star Wars. I love it. And I also love that story about X-Men, right? Like this is idea of there are different stories at different points of our lives that resonate with us for different reasons. And it's it it blows my mind sometimes how much the X-Men impacted so many different generations, whether it was in the 80s because of the comic book, in the 90s because of the animated series, in the late 90s and the 2000s because of the cinematic universe. Like, there's so much incredible impact of this idea of the X-Men. You know, for you, why do you feel like you picked up that book and you're like, oh, this is it. Like, I, I get it. They get me. Like, I'm an X-Men. Like, because <laughs> I feel like that's what I'm, I always hear from folks. Oh, it, it's it, it's the idea that both you understand both the heroes and the villains. I think for me, a lot of times the, the mutant villains is that you, you understand Charles Xavier's message of wanting peace and to work together with people and, and do what's right. But on the flip side, you can understand a Magneto. You can understand those kind of motivations where you've seen atrocities, you you know what humanity has done in the past to people who are different. And when you're growing up, especially in adolescence, when it's tough and you're reading something like the X-Men and you are somebody who's bullied or you are somebody who's, who's different and you're well aware of that, that you do know that there's two routes you can go. You can be, you know, you can just keep walking tall and, and keep walking and just minding your own business or, do you lash out? Do you, do you, do you, you take action? And that to me, I think that was one of the reasons why, you know, that the X-Men, I, I loved them is because even though the world hated them for who they were, they still chose to protect and save the world because they knew ultimately that not everybody was bad, that just a select few. And I think today, nowadays, especially we see that. We see so more in our culture that it's it's uh, I think X-Men is a really important thing, uh, breaking down barriers and uh, understanding this human nature. I love it. And I love the fact because I feel like it's had a little bit of an impact on how you how you're able to adapt the storytelling that you use in your art for comic books and whether it's the hip hop variant covers or it's the work you've done uh, for Indigenous Voices, number one. Like, I really feel like that you just, like, laid out the full core of the ethos around superheroes. Yeah. Uh, just being able to do that. The hip-hop covers was a, was, was a really fun one to do. Uh, I got exposed to music that I hadn't listened to before, and my, my sons knew. So that was really good, uh, dating myself there. But... Um, so, so you were cool is what you're saying. Like suddenly, so talk to me about the hip hop covers, how that started for folks who may not be as familiar with the hip hop covers, which 
I'm obsessed with them. I think they were great. But like how you got involved with the hip hop covers. Oh, man. So uh, the first my first gig with Marvel was actually hip hop cover. It was Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. And knowing that I was going to be doing a Jack Kirby property and then trying to do something cool was great. But Axel Alonso goes, OK, this is my son. Uh, I believe it was Vince Staples cover album cover that I reproduced. Uh, he goes, this is one of his favorite artists, he says. And, and uh, so I'm going to tell you, you show me the comps. And we're going to see what he thinks. If he thinks it looks like him, but, you know, we'll keep talking. And so I did, I did, did him. He came back, said he loved him. And, and that was that. Uh, but a chance to, to have fun, to take something that's like, okay, how can you parody these in a way that sometimes, you know, you have, you be very direct and other times subtlety is what's so, what works is the magic about it. So that that was what was really awesome to do. The the America cover that I did based off the Hamilton, that one came out at a really good time. Uh, the, the truth was she was originally, it was a Captain America cover. And about three months later, they came back and said, hey, we like this better, but we want to do this for America. Can you change this character? Can you go back and redo this? And it's like, yeah, no, not a problem. And... Uh, I think that was, I had already done Captain America cover anyways, and I was really happy to do it, do a new, new character. And that one got a lot of uh, traction. I think that was the first time going to a comic show and seeing it on the shelves of the dealers there saying and asking for a good chunk of money, which was, to me, that was really awesome to see that, to be, that, that was one of the things, uh, there was a few things as a comic nerd that I really wanted to see. That was one of them seeing my work in wizard magazine, which will never happen because Wizards, wizard no longer exists was another, uh, but that, that there was a pretty cool moment. That's really awesome. That is pretty incredible. So from hip hop covers now to literally a full watcher story, which was absolutely amazing. You know, for folks who are going to be looking out for your work, like where should they look for you? Where should they find you? Um, any new things coming down the pipe? Yeah, I'm working with, with Marvel on something right now, which is really exciting and a lot of fun. Uh, I'm working with IDW. I'm on Star Trek, which I'm a huge Trekkie. So that's, that's a wonderful thing to be able to do that. Just finishing up um, my run on Voyager for that. And I'll be taking uh, a couple months off for that and then jumping on a new Star Trek title. Uh, I got some other covers from some other companies, uh, Rick and Morty and, and Transformers. I'm currently doing, aside from the work that I do in the comic book world, I actually do a lot of fine art and uh, public art installations. So up here in Seattle, I'm I'm designing some stuff for the city of Seattle. The biggest one I think would be the at the new NHL arena that we have here, uh, Climb Pledge Arena. I'm designing a, a, a mural for that. So for the Kraken, so that's been, that's been a really cool project to be part of. And so I, I've just been working on some things with Taboo and B Earl, uh, some, some side things that, you know, we're no big deal. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're just pushing it and seeing how far we can take things. 
Thanks again to Jeffrey Varagy for stopping by the show and sharing so much with us. You know, his work carries so much of his identity and culture, and I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. To see more of Jeffrey's work, be sure to pick up Marvel's Voices, Indigenous Voices Number 1, or any of his Native American Heritage Tribute variant covers available now. Marvel's Voices is produced by me, Angelique Roche, Percia Berlin, M.R. Daniel, Alexis Williams, and Jorge Estrada. Our director of audio is Jill Duboff. Our development manager is Brad Barton. This episode was mixed by Cedric Wilson at Lantigua Williams & Co. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamau Wainaina. 